you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 and in verse number 18, kind of jumping into the middle of the gospel story here where Jesus is kind of having some back and forth with the religious leaders of his day. And in verse number 18, Mark records for us now John's disciples, this was John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Now when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and uh, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Now last week we considered one very powerful reason to pray as we're in the middle now of this 21 days of prayer. And uh, our, our consideration was that there is one really compelling reason to pray regularly. And that reason is that prayer is the answer to our anxiety. It's not just mental trickeration. It's not just a distraction. It is actual help for an anxious heart and an anxious mind. And so uh, God's encouragement to us, His call to us, His command to us really is don't worry about anything but instead, pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Why? Because our Father is in heaven, and He is a good Father. And He hears, and He supplies all of our needs. And by the way, He already knows what you need before you even ask. But today I want us to consider another practice that occasionally in the Scripture accompanies prayer, but gets far less attention. And that is the practice of fasting. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar, uh, fasting simply means to abstain from something that is good, like food, for, for a, a specific period of time for the purpose of gaining something better. Right? Now, fasting in our society has become something of, of a health fad, right? There's, there's a variety of different fasts, and some people uh, fast for 16 hours, and some people like claim 18 hours, and you have these feeding windows, and, and, and it produces all of this healthful benefit is what we are told. It's encouraged to help you lose weight, 
or to correct an unhealthy relationship with food, to fight cancer and other serious illnesses, or just to help you focus more clearly on what's truly important. So fasting today, and really probably just in the last maybe five to ten years, fasting has become a pretty popular pop culture thing to do with maybe some real health benefits. But the, but the purpose of fasting in Scripture was never for its physical benefits. It was never about gaining something physically or health-wise. It was instead about gaining something spiritual. It's called for as a demonstration of our humility and repentance or of showing a certain intensity in seeking for God's help, or to demonstrate the depths of our grief. So fasting in the Scripture is a matter of giving up something good in order to show a great need or great desire for God's help, or His blessing, or His forgiveness. Fasting flows, then, in the Scripture from a desire for spiritual good. And it demonstrates just how badly you want it. It's saying, essentially, I am willing to set aside something that is good, like food, in order to demonstrate that I realize that God is better. And that as much as I need food to survive, I need him more. And I desire him more. But in spite of its regular mention in Scripture, fasting is not something that's talked about or even practiced less in many of today's churches, unless it's in connection with some other fad kind of diet, like you've all probably heard the Daniel fast. I don't know, where it's like, we're just going to eat I don't know, beans and cabbage, and uh, abstain from meat for a while. Which I always kind of find a little humorous because we, we're very choosy about which fast we, we choose to, to follow for health reasons, like Daniel fast. Like, yeah, we get on board with that. Um, but where's the John the Baptist fast, folks? Like, where's the crickets and honey kind of fast? We're not quite as on board with that one. But here's my question for us this morning. Very similar to the question we asked last week. The question last week was, do you pray? The question for us this morning is very simple, just as simple. Do you fast? Not, not for health reasons. Because then it's not a Christian fast. It's not for physical benefit. Do you fast for spiritual benefit. In order to help us see why we should fast, we're turning to Mark chapter 2 and the story we just read of Jesus and his, his encounter with these people and the question that they had for him. And the question is fairly straightforward. Their question was, why is it that, that these two major competing factions within Judaism, the, the Pharisees and, and John the Baptist and his followers, why is it that both of these competing, very religious factions 
are fasting on a regular basis, but Jesus, you and your disciples are not fasting. What's up with that? So the question that they ask is really, a, it's arising from an observation. They're doing it, why aren't you? Right? Now what's interesting is that Mark tells us that it's the people who come and ask Jesus this question. But Luke tells us, when he's reporting the same story, that it was the Pharisees who came and asked the question. And Matthew says it was John the Baptist's disciples who came and asked the question. So which one was it? Well, the answer is it's probably all of them. The reality is what this means and what it should lead us to conclude is that this was a question that was on everybody's mind. Everybody's looking around and going, here is Jesus, this very pious, this great teacher. We love listening to Jesus. He's, he's speaking with authority. He's compelling. He's even performing miracles. But we see this, this discontinuity between his religious practice and the religious practice of all of the other people we've been trusting all along. Something's not adding up, and we're not sure we understand why there is a difference. Now, let's say this as well. It's likely that they were fasting, John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees, it's likely they were fasting for two different reasons, right? Though, though by this point in Jewish history, bi-weekly fasts were really kind of part of the religious pattern for many Jews. This was a pattern that was developed late in the B.C. era. So just before the time of Christ, there was a pattern that began of fasting two times per week. But, but listen, fasting according to the law given to Moses, given to Israel, fasting was only required one time per year. According to the law, only one time. And that was at the Day of Atonement. Remember that back from Leviticus chapter 18. This was kind of the, the pinnacle of Israel's yearly worship cycle. That was the only fast that was required. But sometime during the exile, when, when Israel is carted off into captivity, sometime during the exile, it seems that there were at least four annual fasts that were incorporated into the Jewish calendar. You can read about this later, right? right if you want to read about this, uh, find Zechariah in your Bible. It might take you a minute or two, but it's there, right? Uh, Zechariah chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 8 both mention uh, uh, fasts that were happening routinely through the year, and it appears that there are four of them. But then sometime during the period between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, this 400-year intertestamental period, the pious sect of the Pharisees began fasting two times per week. Two times per week, right? But here's the thing. When the Pharisees got their hands on fasting, they turned it, just like they turned every other religious practice, into a means of earning and displaying their own righteousness. So you might recall in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. Luke 18, it says uh, he also told this parable to some who trusted. This was, this was who he was aiming this parable towards. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right? So he's aiming at self righteous people, people who were by their 
religious activity, trying to earn righteousness for themselves, trying to make God happy with them by their own, by their own activity, their own keeping of the law. So this is the parable that he tells, verse number 10 of Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I can. You see what he's doing? He was coming before God and proclaiming to God, here are all of the reasons, God, why you should be happy with me. Here are all the reasons why you should accept me. Look at how righteous I am. I mean, I fast two times a week. That's a lot of fasting, right? But the tax collector, on the other hand, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's Jesus' evaluation of what is going on. He says, I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, so what happened with the Pharisees is that they took religious activity and they, they took it as something through which they could earn, they could merit their own righteousness, and Jesus is going, it doesn't work that way. The relationship with God doesn't work that way. I don't operate that way. You cannot earn your righteousness through the keeping or the abiding by the law. But that's what, that's what the Pharisees would do. They would do it and they would keep it and they, do, they would do it in such a way that other people could see and, and would praise them for their righteousness. Well, look how holy they are. Which is part of the reason why the people were coming and going, man, the Pharisees passed away this week. We know that because they make a big deal about it every week. And so Jesus in Matthew 6 says, hey, when you fast, don't look gloomy and miserable like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others, right? Well, this is what the Pharisees would do twice a week. They just put on their sad face. You see how miserable I am? I'm, it's because I haven't eaten. And I'm so holy, right? Now listen, if you've ever done without a meal or two, you understand how easy it is to be miserable in that process. But Jesus is like, hey, don't go around and make a show of it in order that other people would be impressed by your spirituality. Because you cannot earn your own righteousness before God. So stop trying. Stop doing it for the applause of other people. Jesus says, by the way, if that's what you do, then you've already gotten your reward. You will get no reward from God. Your reward is the praise you get from people. And, and I don't know if you've ever been there, like you've ever really, really wanted the praise and the admiration of someone, but, but isn't it inevitable that once you get it, it kind of eventually falls flat? Right? And we're in the middle of the NFL playoffs, right? They want nothing more than to win the playoffs. They want nothing more than to win a championship. And I've often wondered, last week was the NCAA, the, the men's football championship. Great celebration afterwards. How long do you think that feeling lasts? Don't you wonder sometimes if they wake up the next morning and go, oh my goodness, that was amazing. Now what? Now what? Jesus says if you do what you do 
If you do your religious practice in order to gain the applause of men, then you might get it. But that is all you're going to get. And ultimately, that's going to ring hollow in your ears. So the Pharisees fasted in order to earn their own righteousness and be praised by other people. Now, it's doubtful that John the Baptist's disciples were fasting for the same reason. As a matter of fact, Matthew, if, he's, if Matthew gives us an accurate timeline of events, then John the Baptist is probably already in prison by the time this conversation happens. So it's quite possible that John's disciples are fasting in order to really earnestly seek the Lord and ask for John's release. But what we do know is that they were fasting and they couldn't understand why Jesus wasn't. And that was the question on, uh, question on everyone's mind. Why are you not doing what every other religious system is doing? So what's at stake in Jesus' answer then is not merely a squabble between competing factions of the same religious system. A squabble that had been going on in Israel for a very long time. What Jesus is about to present to us is something entirely new. Something entirely different, which is why they would eventually put him to death, by the way. Because it was too radical, too dangerous to their own power structures, too subversive to their own desires to be righteous in themselves. It would undercut everything that they had been working for. It was so radically different, they would kill him for it. And so Jesus' answer would be equally radical dangerous and subversive and here's the answer that he gives can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them that's the answer and in other words here's his argument the presence of me jesus my presence is reason for joyful celebration therefore fasting which is a sign of mourning and need, is entirely inappropriate while I am here. It's like it's like a wedding, right? Jewish weddings were, were quite an experience. Rather than, rather than a honeymoon after the wedding, but Jewish weddings were uh, involved like week-long feasts. It was a celebration of food and wine and just enjoying the blessings of God to His people. To fast during such a time of celebration and joy would be an unthinkable and highly inappropriate act. It would not be all that dissimilar to, to, to our wedding experiences today. Have you ever been to a wedding? Right? I think most of us have had this experience. You go to a wedding, when, when you show up at the wedding, you don't expect bread and water. You, you don't expect it to be a somber, sad experience. If it is, start asking some questions. Right? Someone probably needs help. Object. Okay? Why? Because weddings are cause for celebration. And, and when there is cause for celebration, then fasting is inappropriate. Jesus is saying, I am the groom. My disciples are my invited guests. So it would be totally inappropriate for them to fast while I am here. Now listen, this is a very subtle if not dangerous, claim that Jesus is making. Because in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh, it is God himself, 
who takes Israel to be his bride. God is the bridegroom of the Old Testament with his people. We see this all over the place. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosea 2, which we read earlier. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband. God is saying, I am going to come to you and enter into a covenant relationship with you. Me, God, your maker, Yahweh. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I am the bridegroom. I am the groom. There is a subtle claim here in Jesus' words uh, that, that identifies him with the God of the Old Testament. This is not a claim to be some lesser being. This is not a claim to be some exalted human. This is Jesus saying, hey, you remember all those Old Testament promises? I am him. I am God. So the absence of fasting amongst this band of his disciples was a celebration of the fact that God was in their midst. Emmanuel, God is with us. The bridegroom has come. Jesus was the source of their joy, the bridegroom of his people, and he was with them. So they were celebrating the answer to many Old Testament promises, the Messiah. The promised deliverer has come. But Jesus' answer doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 20 to say, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And this is Jesus foretelling both likely his death and his ascension back into heaven. Which means that Jesus does not dismiss fasting. Jesus does not just look at them and say, you know what, fasting, that was an Old Testament thing. Now, in this New Testament era, you don't need to worry about fasting anymore. That is not what he says. He's like, hey, right now, fasting is inappropriate, but there's coming a time when it will be appropriate again. There will, time when it will, there, there will come a time where it will be needed again. And so, in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends to heaven, and the disciples start to gather together, and the church starts to gather together, we find them fasting why? Because Jesus was no longer with them. At least not physically. And folks, here's what this means. This means, according to Jesus' words, this means that the time for fasting is now. The time for fasting is now. He is not with us. I mean, he is, right? He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. But at the same time, he isn't. Right? This is why Paul can say, hey, I would rather be absent from the body in order to be present with the Lord because, because though he is with us and though he indwells us, though he will never leave us and never forsake us, there is some aspect of his presence that we are yet missing, that we long for. And so Jesus says during that time, it will be entirely appropriate to fast. Now he goes on to give two illustrations about, about why this is the case. And one, he says, uh, it's the illustration of cloth. And he says, you don't ever take a new piece of cloth that's been unshrunk and sew it onto an old piece of clothing that has a tear in it or a hole in it. Why? I don't know that we deal with this much today. I don't know. Like It seems like shrinking cloth is a thing of the past. Everything is either pre-washed or we've 
you know, manufactured or science our way out of that problem. Some of us, though, are old enough to remember, like, you buy something and you throw it in the dryer for the first time and you pull it out and it's like, that's not going to work anymore, right? Unshrunk cloth. Jesus is saying, hey, you would never take an old piece of clothing that has a hole in it, grab a new piece of unshrunk cloth, and stitch it on there. Why? Because the first time you run it through the wash, that thing is going to separate. It's going to pull apart, and it's going to look worse than it did before you tried to patch it up. It doesn't work. New cloth does not mix with old cloth. And then he gives an illustration of wineskins. Now, wineskins, is, this one's a little harder for us. We don't, we don't use wineskins anymore. Um, but wineskins were, were a, a bottle that were essentially made of leather. And, and because it was made of leather, it would eventually wear out over time and with use and exposure would, would become both stretched and brittle. And so if you take a piece of stretched, brittle leather and you pour newer wine into it and you cap it and seal it off, then what's going to happen? That newer wine is going to continue its fermentation process. The fermentation process produces gas. The gas is going to push on that expanded, brittle leather, and it's eventually going to rupture. And Jesus is like, it's going to be really sad because you're going to lose both the bottle, and, the bottle and your wine, right? No one puts new wine in old wineskins. They don't mix. Now, what is Jesus' point behind these two illustrations? What is he trying to teach us? Well, they both teach the same thing. And what they're saying is that what is new cannot be contained within the old. New cannot be contained within the old. They are incompatible. And the results of compromising the new with the old are destructive to both. Both end up losing their purpose. Both end up losing their meaning when you try to mix them together. One commentator, Warren Wiersbe, um, said this, The Christian life is not a mixing of the old and the new. Rather, it is a fulfillment of the old in the new. There are two ways to destroy a thing. You can smash it, or you can permit it to fulfill itself. An acorn, for example, can be smashed with a hammer, or it can be planted and allowed to grow into an oak. In both instances, the destruction of the acorn is accomplished, but in the second instance, the acorn is destroyed by being fulfilled. Do you get his point? He's like, you can destroy something one of two ways. You can take the acorn and you can smash it to pieces. Or you can take the acorn and plant it in the ground and a tree will grow. Either way, the acorn is destroyed. But one, it is destroyed into something new, into something better. The other, it is just deemed to be useless and worthless, and so we just smash it and sweep it away. This is exactly, folks, what Jesus claimed he was doing with the old covenant and its laws. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? He's like, hey, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think I've come to smash the law with a hammer. I didn't come to do that. Because that would mean that that, that old covenant had no value, but it is valuable. It's very valuable. It's just not final. Instead, it must die. So he continues on. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
I've come to take the seed of the law and transform it into the grace of the gospel. The old covenant system will die, and it did die, and it died into something new. And all of that hinged upon the coming of the bride, the bridegroom. Jesus came, and by his death and resurrection, transformed the old into the new. So the old has passed away like a seed. It's fallen into the ground and died so that it might blossom into something better. This is the true benefit of the coming of Christ. And it's laid out for us in many places in the New Testament. Let me just give you one. Romans chapter 10. Paul says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul's talking about Jews. Right? He was one who had been trying to establish his own righteousness by living according to the law, but it doesn't work. But they were unwilling, by and large, to submit to God's righteousness, which now, through the coming of Christ and through his death and resurrection, the righteousness of Christ is now offered freely as a gift to us. Right? That's what his death and resurrection does. But rather than accepting that gift, the Jews were going, no, 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 we would rather continue working for our own righteousness, right? And in case we think that to be incredibly stupid or dull of them, can we just realize for a second that this is still the major offense of the gospel today? Why? Because the gospel comes to you and says, you know what? You are not good. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many good things you've done, no matter how often you show up to church, no matter how much Bible reading you do, no matter how much uh, help you give to people in need, the gospel comes along and says all of your righteousness is like filthy rags. See, you, you can't become righteous by doing good. That's really offensive. This is the major stumbling block of the gospel. Because in order to receive it, you must first receive and accept the reality that I am not good. We don't like that. What we would rather say is, man, God, look at all the good things I've done. Am I not worthy? Right? We, we would rather go, well, you know, I mean, I get it. I'm not, I'm not good all the time, but, but man, my good kind of outweighs my bad at least a little bit, and God, that should count for something, right? Or we would rather go, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm not maybe the greatest person in the world, but at least, at least I'm not like that person, right? At least I don't do what they do. God, that's got to count for something. See, we, we would always want to take something of the good that we're doing and drag it into our relationship with God, and God is going, it doesn't work that way. You either accept my righteousness or you try to produce your own. But it just doesn't work that way. Galatians says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You just can't do it. You can't be good enough. And the gospel confronts us with that reality. But once you agree with God over that point, then comes the really good news. Romans chapter 10 verse 4. For Christ is the end of of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, all you're trying to be good, all you're trying to be righteous, all you're trying 
to enter into God's good graces by your own activity, Christ brings an end to all of it. Christ shows up and he's like, would you just stop? It's not helping. He's the end of righteousness according to the law for you. This is why Paul, six chapters before, says, now would you stop trying to earn righteousness? Because righteousness is given freely to those who believe in the one who justifies ungodly people. Right? Which is the only way it can happen. If I cannot become godly, if I cannot become good based on my own effort, then the only hope I have is in a God who will come to ungodly people and go, I got you. I got you. Right? That's the only hope we have. And folks, that is the message of the gospel. It is extremely offensive. Because it says some pretty hard things about us. You're not good. Right? But once we come to realize that, the hope that it provides is beyond anything we could have imagined or hoped for. Righteousness is given freely according to faith in Christ Jesus. Now, let's ask this question as we close. What does any of this have to do with fasting? Right? Because this was, this was kind of the crux of the matter, right? Like, why are you not fasting? And Jesus is like, you don't understand. You can't mix the old with the new. And we're like, what? What does that have to do with fasting? Here, here's the reality, folks. Since Christ has come, we are now living in this era that we often refer to as the already but not yet, right? In other words, we have already experienced the forgiveness and the presence of Christ with us, in us. That is a present reality available to us all, yet there is a tension of a king and a kingdom that has come but has not yet fully been consummated. It has not been finished. The king is with us. He dwells in us, but we still long to be present with him. One, one pastor said this in this passage, in this age there is an ache and a longing, a homesickness inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately, and as powerfully, and as gloriously as we want him to be. And that is why we fast. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, which is what Old Testament fasting would have been. We are fasting because we have never really felt the intimacy of God's presence with us. His intimacy is behind Veils of curtains and walls in the tabernacle and the temple. We don't really have access to Him. They were looking forward to a time when all those veils would be taken away. Our fasting is not like that. It's not looking forward to that. Our fasting is looking backwards and going, we have entrance into the very throne room of God by Christ Jesus. Our intensity does not come because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. We must have all that He has promised and as much now as possible. And so we fast. In other words, we fast now because we've experienced the new life. We know what it is for God to dwell with us, in us. We've experienced His forgiveness and his love, and all based on the merits of the promised Messiah. But we 
want more. It's like you get a little taste of something, right? It's like, oh, my goodness, this apple pie is delicious. And what do you want? You want the whole pie, right? A little taste isn't quite enough. It, it's, like when, it's like when you meet a girl and you're off at college and you're together a lot. And then comes Christmas break or summer vacation and you have to go to different states for a time. And, and yeah, you can call on the phone and you can write letters and, and you can do things, but, but that kind of communication just stokes the fire and the desire to be together fully again. Folks, that is what it is like with us in Christ now. We have experienced His intimacy. We have experienced His love. And it only makes us want it more. It only makes us to want to experience the fullness of His presence. It is already here, but it is not yet fully consummated. Fasting is the expression of the desire. We want you. More than we want anything else. More than we want food. We want you. We look at the world around us and we see brokenness and dysfunction and pain. And we know, we know this is not how it was supposed to be. We know it's not right. We long for it to be better. We long for it to be fixed. We're also keenly aware that the effects of sin are still in us. And even though we've experienced God's mercy and His righteousness through Christ, and even though His Spirit dwells in us, we still wrestle with the presence of sin in us, and we are affected by it every day. And so we fast because the bridegroom is glorious and his love is beyond our comprehension and we need and we want more. We've tasted, but we want the feast. Fasting is like being homesick. So the question is, do you fast? The expectation of Jesus is that we would, right? Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you fast, not if you fast. So let's stop application in the last few minutes. Application. What do we do with all of this? Let's just nuts and bolts for a few minutes. Get really practical, okay? Why fast? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, we should fast to express our neediness. It's an expression of our humility, of just how much we need the Lord. I, I need it so much. I need you so much. I, I need you more than my stomach is telling me I need lunch right now. It's an expression of our neediness. Number two, it's an expression of your desire. It's an expression of your desire for God. It's an expression of your recognition that God is better than even the good gifts that he has given to us. And listen, can we be really honest for a moment? Food is good, right? Right now, my stomach is reminding me, food is good. Which means lunch is going to be great. Good food is really good. And you know what? God has given food. Not You ever thought about this? You, you ever thought about the fact that God could have made food 
just like a bland paste that we suck through a straw. Like, you could put all the nutrients and be like, hey, take three of these a day, you'll survive, and you'll be healed. But he didn't. He created flavor and then gave us taste buds to enjoy it. He gave us nostrils to inhale it. Why? Because he desires for you to enjoy his goodness in food and drink is one of the ways that he views us. Now, we can make a mess of that, right? Like we, we can take food and, and make it too important. That has all kinds of deleterious effects, doesn't it? But we are meant to enjoy food. Paul says meats for the belly and belly for the meats. That's why it was created, right? My belly likes it. But he also says I will not be controlled by any of it, though, right? Fasting is a way to say, God, I, typically, I come to you and I enjoy your good gifts. I enjoy the pleasure of food even as I pray to you, and that's what you want me to do. But sometimes my need for you, my desire for you is so great that I'm just, I'm going to put the gifts, the good gifts, I'm going to put them aside. And I just want you. It's a way to say to God, you, God, the giver, you are better than the gifts. In other words, fasting is in itself a means of worship. And as a matter of fact, at least two times in the book of Acts, when you find the church fasting together, it says they were worshiping and fasting. They go hand in hand. Why? Because what is worship? Worship is expressing right things about God, back to God, right? Which is the point. When we get together, we, we remind ourselves of this often, when we get together, worship, what we're doing here, it's not, it's not primarily for you. I mean, let's be honest, there, there's benefit to us, but what we do here, we, we are not the primary audience. God is the audience. You are the, the participants. That's what worship is. Worship is us, as God's people, expressing to Him Things that are true about him. It is, it is exalting his name. It's, it's, it's repeating and, and magnifying his glory. It's reveling in his goodness. And so fasting is a way of saying, Lord, even though food is necessary for life and it is a good gift from you that is to be enjoyed, you, I recognize, are better than that. It's an expression of worship. So why fast? We want to express, we want to tell God, man, I need you. We want to tell him, I want you. I need you and I want you. We fast because God is worthy of our worship. What then are the benefits of fasting? Outside of we might end up with a thinner waistline, what are the benefits? Should we expect a reward for fasting? Should reward even be part of our motivation. Well, listen again to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, folks, can we just, let's just, again, be real plain for a moment. I don't think, 
Christ would have ever, Jesus would have ever said, hey, there's a reward involved here if he did not intend for that reward to be some motivating factor for us. The point of reward is motivation, right? That's why we offer it. Jesus had no problem encouraging us with the prospect of reward. So we shouldn't be so pious as to second-guess the Lord himself on this. Paul's like, hey, I press on to the prize. Why? I want the reward. I want the reward. So what is the rewards for fasting? Let me just give you a couple. Just two. Number one, answered prayer. Now, this does not mean we're in some way manipulating God by, I'm going to do without food, God. I'm going to willpower my way until you answer this prayer in the way that I want it to really get your attention. No, 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 that's not it. This is not me trying to force the hand of God, trying to manipulate him and like, look how sad I am, right? In, in hopes that he will give me what I want. It's not a manipulation. This is me going, God, you, you are what I need. I need you, and I need your answers. But fasting is often found in Scripture as something that comes alongside prayer, something that assists us in our prayer. It's not the normal mode of praying, but there are occasions where we are really earnest for an answer, and fasting demonstrates our great desire both for God and his blessing. The second reward is more of God himself. And if that doesn't sound like reward, then you do not understand Christianity. Folks, let me be very, very clear. The reward of Christianity is not eternal life. The reward of Christianity is God himself. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is bonus. The reward of fasting is God himself. This is an expectation born out of the invitation to you from God himself to come and eat of his table and he will fill you. Or to seek him and he will be found. Or to draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Folks, if you desire God and you pursue him, he will answer. So what is the reward of fasting? It is answered prayer, and it is more of God. So how do we do it? How do we do it? Let me give you a couple of very practical things again. Number one, start small. I, I know some of you well enough to know, yeah, fasting, I should be doing that. And you're going to kick it into the 100 mile an hour. Like, I'm going to start with four days. And you're going to get four hours in and go, nope, right? I'm out. If you've not done this before, don't jump into the deep end of the pool. Okay, start small. Maybe skip a meal. Okay? Drink plenty of water. Maybe include some electrolytes with that water. Okay? Throw some salt in there. Magnesium. Something. I'm here all day for that kind of advice, by the way. This is just me not wanting to find you passed out on your kitchen floor somewhere because you decided not to drink water. Now listen, some of you might not be able to fast from food. Maybe, maybe the doctor's like, no, okay, not for you. You cannot do it. Listen, if the doctor says no, I'm not here to say, well, who are you going to obey, God or the doctor? No, I'm going to say obey your doctor, okay? Let's not be foolish. But there are some things that you can fast from besides food. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that married couples can fast from sexual activity for a time for the purpose of pursuing the Lord. You could fast social media or TV. 
right? There are good gifts that we enjoy that we could choose to do without for a time in order to seek God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, uh, one time delivered a, a sermon on fasting um, about 1960, and this is what he said. Fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. For there are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for special peculiar reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. That is fasting. Okay? So start small. Number two, beware of hanger. You know what hanger is? That's when my belly makes me angry at you, okay? Because I haven't had any food. There's something about being hungry that can really make us irritable. Some of that is our body telling us that we need food, but I suspect probably more often than not, because I've seen it in myself, is that it's not always about need, but want. Right? It's not that I'm going to die if I don't get food today, right? I got, I got plenty of store, okay? I can make it. But my body doesn't think so. My body doesn't want me to believe so. I have cravings. I have wants. And, and we're not very good at telling our wants no. And when we do, it makes me really irritable. Because I would rather just have the comfort. Be careful not to take out your fasting on other people, in other words. We are seeking the Lord, not trying to grieve him in the process. Okay? Be nice to each other. Number three, use the discomfort wisely. Don't just try to distract yourself from the hunger by staying busy or use the, uh, you know, I, I just got to distract my mind as I'm just going to watch something or take a walk or whatever. Instead, use the growls and the pains to remind you of why you're doing what you're doing. When your stomach growls, when you feel the pain, pray. Seek the Lord God. You are better than any food I could put in my stomach right now. Turn your attention to Jesus. Tell him that he is more important. And share your request with him. Here's my final call to us. Part of the reason for entering into 21 days of prayer is that we, as a church family, we, we need to hear from God. And, and you might have some questions about fasting still. I would encourage you, if you do, stick around for the second hour. And you might go, you know, I, I hear you keep saying we need to hear from God. Um, again, in the Discovering God Hour, I would like to share some a little bit more specifics about some things we can and should be praying for as a church. But we need to hear from him. We need his guidance into 2024. We need his strength. We need him to purify us as his people. And we need more of him. We need not just his benefits and his answers. We need his presence. We want him. And we long for him. So here's my call to you as the church. Would you consider fasting with me weekly through the rest of January? Now here's my plan. The plan is beginning on Tuesday night after dinner. To fast until Wednesday night dinner time. That, that means we're getting almost a full 24 hours, but we're really only skipping two meals, right? Breakfast and lunch on Tuesday. 
Would you join with me during that time? To make Tuesday after dinner until Wednesday dinner time a time where Holiday Bible Church pursues God together with an intensity that maybe hasn't been there before. And again, if you say, maybe Tuesdays don't work for me, that's fine. Wednesdays don't work for me, fine. Pray, ask God, pick another day. I can't do food, medical reasons, whatever, that's fine. Pray and ask God, what can you do? Now, let me give a clarification that I know is going to help ease the conscience of some, right? Because some of you, I, I know I can hear it in your, in your mind already, go, wait a minute, we shouldn't let anyone else know when we're fasting, right? Jesus said, right? Don't do it so other people can see, but you misunderstand his point. There were many occasions when fasting was known because it was a, a corporate event. It was something people were called into to seek the Lord, whether it was Israel corporately, the church corporately, the disciples together corporately. It happens in the Old Testament that way. Uh, John the Baptist disciples with the church in Acts. There were times where it was very clear everyone was fasting at the same time. That wasn't by accident. That was planned. Jesus' point then is not that we can never fast together, but that we should not fast for the purpose of appearing spiritual to other people so that we get their praise for it. Right? It's not a means of trying to get the applause of men. In other words, Jesus, when he says this, remember it's the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he is constantly hammering on our motivations, on our heart issues. He's going, hey, look, it's not about what you do on the outside, it's what's on the inside that really matters, right? And so here with fasting, he's like, he's like it's not the, externa the externality of it that matters so much. I don't care that other people know what you're doing. I'm not trying to make you keep it a complete secret because, by the way, listen, if you were, then the whole thing about when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I remember as a kid looking at that going, how is that even possible? This is next level secrecy. This is like some sort of mental gymnastics that I can't figure out. Well, what's his point? His point is not that you have to try to figure out some level of secrecy that is so beyond comprehension that it's impossible to obey this command. Or like I'm just over here letting my left hand fill out the check for me going, God, guide that into whatever number it's supposed to be. But don't let this hand know what it is. No, what he's saying is beware of your motivations in doing what you're doing. We're not doing this so that you look really spiritual to your neighbors. We are calling ourselves together to fast in order to seek the Lord with an earnestness and with a desire that maybe has been lacking. So like the church in Acts who fasted and prayed together for God's guidance, Let's seek the Lord, and let's expect that he will answer us according to his word and according to his will.